0: CJAM 99.1 FM programming is hosted almost exclusively by community volunteers. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are that of the host and their guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of CJAM FM. For more information and resources, visit our website at cjam.ca. Hi, I'm Samantha, a past guest on CJAM's HandyLink. You're listening to HandyLink on CJAM 99.1 FM, reaching high ground in Windsor, Detroit.
1: Welcome to HandyLink, sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out I-C-H-A, Windsor On, on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. In this segment of our show, Laura Siren will be telling us a little bit about Diabetes Canada. So can you tell me a little bit about Diabetes Canada?
2: Sure. So Diabetes Canada is uh, Canada's leading national organization to support people who live with diabetes, uh, lead a better quality of life. Um, so whether you have type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes or gestational diabetes, We are here to help support you, whether that's through patient education, whether that's through some of our connection programs. We also fund research. We advocate on behalf of people who live with diabetes with different governments, federal, provincial, territorial. Uh, And we do a lot of education of the healthcare professionals who take care of folks with diabetes. And Cam, that includes me. I live with type 2 diabetes. So all of this is professional for me, but it's also very personal for me.
1: So, that being said, how does Diabetes Canada reach out to the affected population?
2: Mm -hmm. So, we do a lot of different things now. Obviously, a lot online. So, we um, have um, patient... um, webinars conferences people uh look up diabetes canada say if they've got diagnosed or someone in their family's got diagnosed their doctor or nurse or dietitian may have told them check on diabetes canada and then when you go there there's lots of different information but we of course also are very active on social media facebook twitter linkedin instagram going out with recipes um ways to uh, manage your diabetes better, complications that you might be wanting to keep an eye out for. So we both go out to people um, and uh, we also have people come to us and then provide information. For healthcare practitioners, we uh, have lots online, but we also uh, run an annual in-person conference that's held in different parts of the country. And we get a couple thousand healthcare, maybe family dogs, maybe endocrinologists, dietitians, nurses, who have big uh, patient populations with diabetes. And we bring them together in person over a number of days. And we talk about the latest in diabetes research, the latest in diabetes care. And um, we also publish a scientific journal called the Canadian Journal of Diabetes, the CJD. And that. Um, people submit researchers and scientists submit articles, and that is another way that we get the word out to that research and science community about what the latest findings on diabetes are. So, when you mentioned advocacy, do you ever encounter any
1: myths or stereotypes concerning <laughs> diabetes?
2: A hundred percent. It's a great question, and I'm uh, really glad you asked. In in fact, when we asked people living with diabetes in this country, over a third of them said that they have experienced stigma because of their diagnosis. So uh, we hear both things. We we hear people misunderstand the diseases a lot. So for example, people will say, well, isn't type one only juvenile diabetes? Um, And the answer is, well, actually, There are adults who can get diagnosed with type 1. So there's a lot of misunderstanding. Oh, I only thought it happened to kids. And then why does it happen? And with type 2, the one that I live with, one of the biggest sort of misunderstandings and and stereotypes is that you get it because of a personal failure, that you didn't exercise enough or you didn't eat enough. People don't understand that. What you eat and, and the amount of physical activity is important, but also your genetics, the environment you're brought up in, the, uh, the stress you experience, um, uh, you know, many other things maybe have impacted uh, your ethnicity, uh, may have impacted why you got diabetes. And that stigma of self-blame and misunderstanding um, can really have a profound impact on people living with it, including not seeking care, wanting to be in denial about it, being embarrassed to talk to their doctor about it. And quite frankly, Cam, sometimes even healthcare practitioners themselves can make people feel stigmatized. Like, you've got diabetes, just lose some weight, it'll all be good. And I'm not saying every doctor's like that, but certainly um, the stigma can come from many places. It can come from friends and family, it can come from the media. Sometimes I get very upset when I see. Um, a news story uh, going on and they're you know talking about the rising prevalence of diabetes. And what's the picture they show? A very obese, uh, middle-aged white man. You don't even see his face. You just see the shirt rising up over the belly and holding an ice cream cone. And this is their picture of diabetes. And the, the, when they say, so people living with diabetes, and that's what they show. And I think, that's not all of us. Why are you showing that picture? And so I think there is a lot of misunderstanding and and a lot of blame and a lot of stigmatizing that goes on.
1: So, do you have any advice for someone who's starting out on their diagnosis journey as to how to get away from those myths and stereotypes and uh, just find out what this really means for them?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I wish um, I could back up six years ago, Ken, when I was first diagnosed and give myself the advice I'm about to give you. Because i was rocked by my diagnosis there's no diabetes in my family my family is a cancer family and so i've always got screened for that and when the doctor i'll never forget she turned her chair and she said to me you have diabetes it could have knocked me over with a feather and i literally came to your point i didn't even know what that meant I, I didn't even if someone had said you have cancer or you have parkinson's or you have like i would have known but i i uh, I was quite lost, and I did what you shouldn't do, Cam. I just sort of went into myself. Um, I didn't, I told my husband, I didn't want him to tell anybody else. Um, and I just said to the doctor, I'll try to do with, with diet and exercise. I didn't want to listen uh, about medications, et cetera. What I have since learned um, that I should have done and would have been a lot better is first of all, Sort actually express really clearly to the healthcare professional. Um, wow, I'm really surprised. Can you tell me more about what that means for me? Like, I would seek for understanding to, and not just sort of take the diagnosis and think, "Well, I failed at something. I'm just going to take that into myself and and not go anywhere." But say, so what does that mean? And and what should I start doing? Like, actually seek. So I didn't know at the time. My family doctor was connected to a dietitian. If she'd said at the time, and we can put you in touch with this person, and here's why that might be helpful. So what I've heard a lot of people with diabetes say is, please ask me what I need. Don't tell me what I should do. Ask, don't tell. And so what I would say is, if you've been diagnosed, do a lot of asking and Um, don't feel you have to be told. So you can ask your doctor when you go home. One thing I would really encourage you to do if you've been diagnosed or relatively newly diagnosed, or maybe you've been diagnosed for a while but you honestly haven't been able to admit it to folks, is start sharing in a comfortable circle. And I would just be really clear to say this is very hard for me to share. Um, And while diabetes is not my fault, I sometimes feel like it is. And my experience with that and what I've heard many other people is, when you phrase it that way, you give permission to for people to understand that they need to walk carefully through this conversation with you. And then I would find out lots of information. Come to diabetescanada.ca. Um, really understand what are the potential complications in the long run, what are the things you can do to uh, start managing prevent those complications from ever happening to you of course it really depends you know do you have type 1 do you have type 2 do you have the right diagnosis Uh, one of our board members was diagnosed with type 2 um, and all the medication she was on was not working she ended up in the hospital and it turns out she'd been misdiagnosed and she was type 1 which was a very different set of treatments for her so do you have the right diagnosis? Do you understand what it means? Um, and how can you start thinking about what are steps I could take? I, I know in my case, they wanted to, you know me to go on a medication right away, and they also suggested cholesterol medication because those of us with diabetes are at high risks of heart attacks and strokes. And so, And I was quite resistant. I said, no, no, I only want to go on one medication at a time. And had my doctor taken some more time then to say, it doesn't mean your cholesterol's bad. This is not another failure, Laura. This is, we're going to prevent anything. This is a preventative measure you're taking so that we're really reducing the risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. That would have been a difference. So, again, my advice would be if you've had a diagnosis and they're encouraging you, whether it's lifestyle changes, medication change, etc., continue to be curious. Well, what's, how is that going to help? What's that going to do? Um and uh and then be open to to it. It's um it's not a failure if you go on medication. It's about making sure you're managing it as well as you can now so that you can live as long and healthy a life as as possible.
1: I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Sure. This next interview folks is a post-dated one, so some of the events referred to may already have happened.
0: In this segment
1: of our show, Sandy Hancocks will be telling us a little bit about childhood cancer. So, can you tell me a little bit about your work with childhood cancer?
0: Sure. Um, so, Childhood Cancer Canada is a national organization here in Canada. And it's our mission to serve every pediatric oncology family across the country from coast to coast to coast. And we provide direct family uh, programs to support the families as well as we invest in much needed pediatric oncology research.
1: So, how do you reach out to the families affected to let them know that you're there as a resource and a supporter?
0: So our first contact with the family comes through their social worker or through a medical referral sources, perhaps a nurse, um, that uh, um, knows the situation. So when children are diagnosed with a pediatric cancer, um, a social worker is brought into the circle of care. And we rely on our medical referral sources to reach out to us on behalf of the family, to introduce us to the family, so that we can try to help the family.
1: So, do the supports you offer include anything like mental health supports for uh, trying to keep at your best and not giving in to the despair of having a childhood cancer?
0: Um, We do not have a specific program designed for psychosocial support. Um, However, we have relationships with other organizations, um, such as all of the pediatric oncology hospitals and other community organizations that specifically do provide psychosocial support to families that have been diagnosed with a pediatric cancer.
1: So do you ever encounter any myths or misperceptions about pediatric cancer?
0: Um, yes, as a matter of fact, we do. Uh, first of all, um, most, there's a lot of people, I'm not going to say most, there's a lot of people that are totally unaware that a pediatric oncology Uh, exists. Um, Because it is a small number of children that are diagnosed each year in Canada, so approximately a thousand children a year are diagnosed with uh, a pediatric cancer. Um, People are just not aware that that such an illness does exist. And pediatric uh, cancer is different from an adult cancer children are still growing, they're still metabolizing, um, they're developing their physiology and so treatments for pediatric oncologies are different than for adults and so there is a difference and that that is why we need to invest in different research that specifically applies to pediatric cancers versus adult cancers.
1: Do you find that uh, when you do raise awareness to clear up these myths. The community is typically receptive and willing to listen.
0: Absolutely, they are. Um, So, you know, communication is always really important. Information is important. Asking questions is important and being transparent um, as an organization is very important. Um, You know, the expression that you don't know what you don't know um, puts people in a position like, well, I didn't know to ask that question. So we try to inform Um, information out in the public sphere so that people have a a general idea of where that information is coming from so that it is a credible source as well um, when people are asking questions and if if we are not able to help pediatric oncology families we try to find out who can help them where can we refer those families so that they can get the answers or the support that they are looking for
1: so I'd imagine that's pretty critical in your work, and so much as everyone likes to run it through Doctor Google, as they say, and see the worst-case scenario. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it, absolutely. Um, you know the, the the medical system that we have and the supports that are in place and the information that is eva- available. It's very important to go to reliable sources. You know, within the medical community, um, you know, the nurses, the doctors, the the, the social workers, the. You know, anybody that is in that medical community um, are the best folks to to reach out to, connect to, and get information from. I can't even begin to imagine, um, you know, when, if your child starts to feel ill, you know, when you start to Google things, the, the, you know, amount of information that is out there, whether it is relevant um, to to. Your child, um, it, you know, remains to be seen. So the best information is should come from the, the medical community that is helping you and trying to treat you.
1: So in your time raising awareness and doing this work, has there been any success moment that stands out for you?
0: Um, I would say that... Um, success for me is about collaboration and making sure that we are understanding the needs of the family and and so if we're not able to help how how can we how can we help in another way if it's not direct help so for example if a family is having a problem perhaps paying their, their power bill, um, you know, where can they go for help? So we, we work with a multitude of different agencies that are, are designed to specifically support pediatric oncology families. So we try to refer them. So we, we do get many emails and telephone calls about you know where where can i get help for this or that and we're happy to refer those those families on and then learn that they were successful in applying for financial support to help pay for their hydro bill so to me that is what those successful moments look looked like is that we were actually able to go full circle with a with a, a a challenging situation and then how is it resolved
1: like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great.
0: Sure, no problem.
1: Thanks. Thank you. Of course. Handy Link will be right back after these commercial messages, so stay tuned.
0: The Writing Support Desk is a free service
1: available to all University of Windsor students from all disciplines and levels of study. The Writing Support Desk helps students hone their own writing and editing skills to empower them to submit their best work possible. It also helps students understand assignment prompts, construct strong arguments, and to properly cite sources. The Writing Support Desk is available online, providing one-on-one consultations on Microsoft Teams. For the most up-to-date information, visit uwinsor.ca
2: slash writing support.
1: Welcome back to HandyLink, sponsored by The Italian Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor Essex. For more information, check out ICHA Windsor On on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. Earlier in our show, Laura Siren told us a little bit about Diabetes Canada, and Sandy Hancock told us a little bit about childhood cancer. In this segment of our show, Jeff Thiessen will be telling us a little bit about his latest accessibility work. So, what can you tell me about your latest accessibility work? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, working on a new project called Mindset, and what it is is disability inclusion education uh, in the form of e-learning. Modules, module series. The the first series we're creating for um, a corporate, the corporate community, uh, employees specifically. So, you know, Kim, it's not so much about um, you know, thou shalt hire a person with a disability. It's, it's more about when that person is hired and uh, impacting uh, or affecting the kind of the corporate culture. Uh, I guess you could say allyship is the word that's used a lot. So just. You know, kind of building comfort and confidence and, and competence uh, in, in in the staff community um, in in working uh, with folks with disabilities and understanding uh, some of our unique uh, um, uh, aspects of our lives and our u- unique identities. So we're pretty we're pretty excited about it. So, in that sense, uh, especially in the corporate world, I'd imagine that actually working alongside someone with a disability might dispel some of the myths and stereotypes. Looking at a statistic of what a disability is is one thing. Having a personal story and working alongside towards a common cause is something else. Yeah, I I think so. And and the way we approach this is with authenticity. And we have a cast of uh, 18 uh, individuals with a variety of, of, of different disabilities. That are talking about things that are are maybe obstacles for 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 coworkers. Language, for example, you know, we, we hear about person first language. We hear about identity first language. Uh, bad language, you know, words we just don't use anymore, and we, we just try to help from the perspective
2: of the person with a disability uh, sort through that. And and you know, across eighteen cast members, um, I, I think everyone said. It really doesn't matter (laughs) to me, as long as it comes with good intention and and respect, uh, we we can work through through that language. And uh, yeah, it was just good to hear that from them. Um, You know, they talk about things like inspiration, exhaustion. You know, no praise required for um, you know things they talked about, with walking their dog or going grocery shopping. That's everyday life uh, for us, and and we translate that into the, the workplace too where you know commending and applauding for for everyday things gets um, as these folks told us it gets, gets pretty tiring at the end of the day because it's a
1: reminder all the time that uh you know we have difference and as you know we don't think about that all day long we just um do what we need to do so uh yeah good, good point you make and, and that is something we, we certainly address so that's interesting uh I don't know if you're aware, but uh, disabilities course I designed a while back has a slide called, it's called Breakfast. When a person with a disability gets up and makes toast, that's not inspirational. That's breakfast. But honestly, you're you're never going to make everyone happy when it comes to language, so uh, I'd imagine you're just doing the best you can with that. Yeah, it's it's probably one of the, the sort of the lightning rod topics of, of across our eight, eight modules, just because it can be so divisive. And you know, we've heard people say that you know
0: people don't know how to refer to me, um, so they don't say anything at all, and you know, any kind of relationship stops right right there. So yeah, that, that's a that's a big one. Uh, we also talk about ableism, uh, another lightning rod, just kind of explaining what that is and how that is experienced by people with disabilities and, and, you know, how it it makes them feel or how they respond to it. Um, Stereotypes, we talk about benevolent bias. You may may not know you have bias and you you don't intend to, but maybe some of the things you say or do is... Certainly, bring in humor. Uh, humor humor normalizes for sure. So
1: we've got some of our team um, sharing some some pretty funny experiences, um, you know, and where that line is, and uh, culturally uh, within our within our own community, of course, and then more to the, to the broader uh, corporate culture. So it's been a learning experience for me. I've been. You know, as you know, in the disability community for more than four decades, and uh, it's so cool to to really learn some some, some new perspectives from others. So I'm curious, uh, one of the hot-button issues I've heard about time and again is people talking around a person with a disability. Do you address that at all?
0: Yeah,
2: we we do, and and that's in the introductory one. So I think what you mean is... um, Speaking to a companion as opposed to speaking directly to the person with a disability? Do I have the the question right, Cam?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, I experienced that for years in restaurants, particularly. So I'd be with my now wife and, you know, then girlfriend and and fiance, and earlier years is when we were married too.
2: More often than not, she would get the bill.
1: The the server would bring the check and put it down in in front of her. I mean, that's another
0: example of of what you're talking about, not addressing um, the the person uh, with with a disability. And I I think these modules are going to help with that in that, again, we want to build a comfort level uh, of
1: confidence in that, um, yeah, we, we can have that conversation very well. So, uh, what's the ideal outcome of the modules? Uh, what would you most like to see happen uh, in terms of education and awareness? You know, we're starting with, with the corporate community and, and we will do uh, uh, new iterations of, of this work for other sectors. Um, so, ultimately, we, we want, uh, you know, this to have an impact on, on corporate culture maybe even to the point where it's not needed. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, yeah, I, I guess it makes a more uh, 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 I- enjoyable, successful working opportunity or, or working environment um, for those with disabilities where they can really be who they are and, and bring their whole person uh, to work. and um, be proud of that. And as we, you know, move on, we'd like To look at the healthcare sector and the education sector, and then potentially the sports and recreation sector as well. And you know, it's 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 um, it's different stories, of course, in those different sectors of of society. Um, So we know we have a lot of work ahead of us, which we're we're happy for. Like to thank you for taking the time out to do this. But if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great.
2: Thank you, Cam. Always a pleasure.
1: my pleasure. My friends, when it comes to Jeff's new project, I couldn't agree more with the fact that there is a need out there to break down some of those myths and stereotypes concerning disability. I've always found the best way to do that is by working together, common cause, actually getting to know someone with disability, come to appreciate their abilities very much not- going to be what you'd read in a textbook. It's going to be how the individual responds to their situation, how they've learned to adapt. It can not only be a source of strength, but of innovation. That's something we need to welcome into the workplaces, the education system, even personal relationships. Fact is, disability life is human life. It's a thread that weaves through every facet of our being. This has been Handylink. I'm your host, Cam Wells, reminding you we're all equal, so get on out there and
0: have yourselves a good one. Something tells me you've earned it, folks. We'll see you next week.